0: Diego Rodriguez has had a remarkable career at the intersection of design, business, and education, ranging from his role as a global managing director of design firm IDEO, to a founding faculty member of Stanford's D School, to his current position as executive vice president, chief product and design officer at Intuit. During our chat with Diego, we discuss how design plays a strategic role and influences broader business goals into its unique approach to product design and the need to build a certain level of trust and empathy with customers when designing financial products. This is the final episode in our third season of the Design Better podcast. We hope you've enjoyed learning about the connected workflow and are looking forward to next season where we'll be diving into more deep conversations with design leaders. Enjoy this episode, and keep designing great products. Diego, welcome to the Design Better podcast. So good to have you here. Oh, it's really a pleasure to be here with both of you. So um, let's start off with a little bit about your, your path to where you are currently, maybe starting with your first role in Intuit and then going to IDEO.
1: So I came to Intuit out of business school. I had actually gone to business school out of working at IDEO, so I was also a boomerang at IDEO. And I went to Intuit because of two reasons in 2001. One was that people may or may not remember, but that was right after the dot-com crash. And I was adamant that I wanted to work on something that we would now call in the cloud. And then there wasn't really a, a great pithy term for that. And Intuit, I had heard Scott Cook speak at Harvard Business School during my first year there. And Scott is the founder of Intuit. And I was really taken by how customer-focused he was and how he talked about experimentation. And it felt like that's a place where there's going to be people like me who like to build stuff. And I was also really interested in changing up my career trajectory. I had been working as a design engineer and project leader at IDEO and at Hewlett-Packard before that. And during those years, I, I got really interested in the idea that there are so many amazing designs that we were doing and that other people were doing, and yet the hit rate in the marketplace wasn't always commensurate with the brilliance in the design. And I had clients who were VPs of marketing or CMOs, and I thought they seemed to have a big part of the equation, you know sitting in their hands. So I went and became a marketer, uh, product marketing and brand marketing into it. And I learned a tremendous amount there, and it was during that time, actually, that we started having this small group of people who were all some of David Kelly's former students here at Stanford. And we started hanging out um, and having breakfast together. And one thing led to another. And right around uh, the summer of 2004 was when we started putting together the idea of the D School. And just some things happened in my life between that and uh, IDEO called me to see if I was interested in a new role they had there that would involve a lot of organizational change. And that took me back to IDEO, where I founded a discipline there called business design, which we can get into later if you want to talk about that.
0: That's great. So you, the, the opportunity uh, at IDEO and also the founding of the d.school sort of happened in, in parallel, roughly, around the same time?
1: Yeah. I mean, what was really interesting was, you know, I, so I left IDEO in 1999 and uh, went to business school. And that's when, in 2000, Tim Brown became CEO. Uh, David Kelly had always been the CEO of IDEO. And Tim took IDEO through this process called IDEO 2.0, which was to reimagine what the company could be doing in the world. When I worked there in the 90s, it was really about designing physical products. And it was, I mean, it was amazing. I got to work on so many amazing things. But when I left to go to business school, I never imagined that I would actually end up back at IDEO again because I didn't want to do CAD drawings anymore. But what they did with IDEO 2.0 was move from the idea that to design things, you needed to go to design school and be a capital D designer to the idea that anybody can access this way of thinking and in doing so really you know, unleash this kind of design thinking movement. So it, it wasn't a coincidence that the time we were starting the D school, that IDEO also called me to come back and say, hey, we need to incorporate business into our design process. And you're kind of this weird person who We know from before as a designer, but now you've had this transformational experience at business school and then working in a world-class business. And could you come
2: bring some of that back into our culture? Let's push on that a little bit more, the transformation that you went through at IDEO. IDEO is well known for doing service design, but you spearheaded something totally new, designing businesses. Can you talk to us about the, the transformation that happened inside of IDEO? And if you can, what artifacts or processes or things influence the way that you think about design today?
1: Yeah, I relate it really to this overall design thinking movement, right? And we're recording this at the D School, And if we stepped outside, we'd probably run into a law student and maybe a med student, certainly a bunch of undergrads and some engineers and people from all over campus. And that's really what was happening at IDEO during that time period, too, was the idea that, hey if we're going to be designing things at scale that aren't just things that make a sound when you drop them, right, physical products, we need to be embracing all the complexity that goes into a successful design that's going to live on in the world. And I like to talk about business and the design process as being the equivalent of gravity to architects and civil engineers where it's laughable to think about someone designing a bridge or a building without considering gravity. But, you know, for the first part of my career, the first decade of my career as a design engineer, I never ran into the idea of money. You know, sure, there was somebody in some conversation somewhere saying, hey, could we reduce the bill of materials price? Or, you know, that's going to cost too much to use that material. Or we don't have time to develop that software. It'll be too expensive. But it really didn't factor into the design decisions I was making. And so what you see happening via design thinking, and this echoes into my work at Intuit now, is this idea that, hey, there are people who can be an integral part of the design process who didn't go to a formal design school, but they could be an expert in business or in systems design, or you know they could be a computer scientist, but so long as they understand the design process and are human-centered, they can contribute in a way that adds a lot of uh, diversity to the process and um, gets you really to a better overall result. So what we saw at idea was, Hey, we can, we can actually have people with depth, expertise in business be in the project space as a member of the design team and just be in there and be accepted as a designer. And by doing that, and uh, it wasn't just that discipline. It was many others that we brought in. We can tackle things at a, completely
0: different scale and level of ambition than we could before. So right now in your current role, maybe first talk a little bit about that role since we haven't touched on that yet. And then also, what are some ways you go about communicating the value of design to various stakeholders in the business?
1: Yeah, so my role, the formal title is Chief Product and Design Officer. So I'm responsible for ensuring that our product's come together for our customers in a coherent integrated seamless fashion. You know, that we truly it's easy to say end-to-end customer experience, but to actually pull it off in that kind of integrated way is uh is a lot more difficult. And so I spend a lot of my time working with different stakeholders around the business, and in particular I also lead our design and our product management communities. So, it's a really interesting question, right, the value of design in business. I think I kind of have two ways to think about it. I think if you're in a business or an organization that doesn't understand design or really value it, I believe that you need to figure out how to talk about it in a language that makes sense to that organization where they are. And in most organizations, uh, money actually is something that's one of the currencies, right? Uh, No pun intended. But you can ask fundamental questions like how do we make money or how do we stay in business or how do we influence, if you're a nonprofit, how do we influence the people that we work with? And when you start asking those kind of questions as a designer, you'll be brought into conversations and engaged at a level that will help people understand that you're not just there to make things look beautiful. Even though making things look beautiful is an incredibly valuable part of the overall equation. Right? But you want to be there where you can ask the questions about why are we taking this path or could we expand our, our approach to be uh, more holistic. So that's one way of talking about the value of design to a business or in a business setting. There is this concept out there of good design is good business, which Thomas J. Watson at IBM articulated, I think, way back in the 60s or the early 70s. And i think that's true right but when i say good design i'm sure that for a lot of people listening to this pod it's conjuring up images of something in moma or a really nice eames chair really expensive right and and i think that's all great and i i love that stuff especially a good eames lounger but i think good design is starts to be almost like too much of us looking in the mirror and saying well we practice good design therefore we're valuable I think it's much more interesting. And I, I truly believe that when you look into the majority, probably the overwhelming majority of organizations that are really having a big impact in the world, again, whether they're a nonprofit or for-profit or whatever, a B Corps, they're doing it because they're linking their mission to the output in the world with a great amount of intention and they have a strong point of view that's getting executed and embodied in whatever they're doing in the world. And so what I like to say is that good business actually happens by design and by design, I mean that amazing process of being human centered to develop a point of view and then ensuring that your intent, you know, all those sparks of creative genius and insight that you get to in those first moments of a design project or initiative actually get into somebody's hands six months later, you know, a couple of years later when that's the hard part. But so, I mean, you can argue it two ways. I think if you're not in a design-friendly environment, figure out what makes the organization tick and use that language. Talk about money. Follow the money. If you're in a place um, that already values design but maybe isn't always executed on, on it well, really focus on what are the things that are getting in our way of translating that value into the marketplace.
2: Diego, you've got this interesting hybrid perspective on design but you also have an MBA, so you see design from the business side. Talk to us about how you encourage your teams of designers at Intuit to speak the language of business so they can build better partnerships with engineers and, and other key stakeholders.
1: Well, one of the great things at Intuit, among, amongst many great things, is that it's built into the culture. and so. There's a shorthand we use in the company. And one is that there's an acronym. There's a lot of acronyms. CDI, which is Customer Driven Innovation. And basically, that's a framework that everybody in the company is familiar with. And it really helps people understand what we should be working on and focus on the the right topic. So, And customer driven innovation is basically the idea that, hey, whenever we decide to go work on something, it needs to be something that's really important. It's a big customer problem. Right. You don't want to make something that's not a big customer problem, that's not addressing a real problem out in the world. And it needs to be something that we actually can solve well. You know, you also don't want to do something where, yeah, you know, we really can't do a great job doing that. It doesn't mean you can't venture into new spaces. It just means we need to figure out how to do that really well. And then finally, the third part of that equation is. It's got to be something where we can actually create a durable advantage over time for our business, right? Because we want to stay in business and do well with this endeavor because we want to keep helping our customers with with this, this thing. And so there's one element there that the whole organization really gets about. We have a unified language and mental model for talking about what we should focus on. And then we also have a unified approach, which is design thinking. Uh, for how we're going to go make that happen. And that we call Design for Delight or D4D for short as an acronym. And that one will feel very familiar to listeners of this podcast. It's get out of the building and get empathy for real people. Create a lot of ideas. Don't get stuck. Don't fall in love with your first solution. Build a lot of stuff. Test it and then experiment in market so that you can really get the verdict on what works from real humans and not from the most influential person in the room in your business. And so the way the way we think about the culture is those two together, right? Customer-driven innovation helps you focus on what to solve and Design for Del- Delight helps you have a process for making those come together. So for me, as this kind of hybrid business designer person, as you said, it's been fantastic because... Everyone there accepts the idea that, that I was talking about earlier is that good business is happening by design. It's just part of the culture, right? But it's taken a lot of work by my predecessors to make that a reality in the culture. And it is one of those things where I think language matters a lot. And so I think sometimes when I see people running into barriers or encountering friction or they can't seem to, you know, designers are sitting frustrated and isolated from the rest of the organization – I think it's because there's a language gap and they are struggling to find a way to connect with other disciplines in the company. And so there's ways to break through that. I think that just saying, hey, we're going to have a design thinking day is a good start, but you might think about what's the language around design thinking that will make sense to my culture. And for example, Intuit, before I arrived, very intentional about developing the phrase design for delight. So embedded in that is an agreement within the organization that what that means is when we focus on making our products beautiful, making them work seamlessly, making them completely functional and absolutely reliable, that leads to delight, right? People feel like amazing using these products and have an emotional reaction, which is positive. And that actually leads to the things that a business cares about, which is revenue growth and satisfied customers and we measure delight in a lot of different ways, you know, net promoter scores and a lot of other metrics. So we're actually tracking this thing. So it's not, a, it's not a fluffy kind of conversation. It's a very data-driven conversation we have linking design
2: to business outcomes. I love that. I love that you're measuring the impact of design and that you've got a culture where design for delight is just in everyone's vocabulary wonder if we could talk a little bit more about measurement and around NPS, because there's a controversy in the design industry that NPS is maybe not the best measure of our influence. What other metrics do you use to measure the influence of D4D?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Absolutely. I mean, NPS is one of those things where it's not perfect, but it, I don't think anybody's found a better alternative to it yet. Yeah. Right. So it's one measure we use. We also have all of our products instrumented, which is a big deal. And in some cases, we're still working to get all the nooks and crannies instrumented. By and by instrumented, I mean we can understand when someone starts a a task. Like in our QuickBooks software, if you are a plumber and you go install a, a sink disposal, you send that person an invoice, right? And that's how you get paid which is a big deal if you're a small business entrepreneur. We can tell if someone started to create an invoice and couldn't make it through the whole process. Mm. And that's a big deal because that means they're not going to get paid, which means that tuition payment for their kid in college may be in jeopardy. There. So we take that really, really seriously. So another metric we have is this idea of task completion. Right, can, When somebody t- starts a task, can they complete it? We also... As a complement to NPS, we talk about a product recommendation score. So NPS is really a relative measure where you ask someone, hey, would you recommend this product? Usual scale, zero to 10. Sure. We actually will ask people while they're still in the product flow, what did you think about that experience? So that's we call that a product recommendation score because it's happening right in the moment and it's more temporal. And so we think that's in some ways, more timely. And, and we can tie that to a specific part of a, an experience as opposed to the overall brand experience. Mm-hmm. Other things we do that I find just incredibly compelling is, hey, there's a lot of opportunities in life, if you think about it, where you're getting a lot of qualitative input. And this has always been one of my dilemmas as a designer is that I once had a client say at IDEO, and he was a great client. So your best clients are always your smartest ones. But he said something like, you know, you, you've you been showing me a lot of anecdotes and we went on this great study in the city and talked with 10 people, but all we have are anecdotes. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm concerned that 100 anecdotes doesn't make a data set. Mm-hmm. And uh, That's the typical pushback. <laughs> that's the typical pushback. And actually, he's right. I mean, you don't have pattern recognition at a quantitative level there. You certainly have it at a cognitive level. And we all know that Hey, by the time you've talked with 10 people, you know what's going on with a specific product or an area. And when you talk to 100, it's even more rich. But what I find amazing about artificial intelligence now, so let's say you have millions of customers calling you for help with your product, which is the the case we have, right? We just got done with taxes on April 15th. So a lot of people were calling saying, hey, I have a question, or could you help me understand how this button works? you can use artificial intelligence to look across all those calls because with natural language processing, we can actually turn qualitative points of data like this podcast. And actually we could go in and mine it and find out how many times I said the word interesting or cool and get some sentiment analysis. And so you start to be able to say, Hey, we can measure the emotional tenor of conversations we're having with customers. And then we can tie that to, Hey, uh, today for some reason that specific specific feature is trending up. Oh wow, we made a change to that workflow 2 weeks ago. Maybe it's not working the way we thought it was going to work. And then you can go in and look at the instrumented data from the product and say, "Wow, maybe that extra button we put in isn't having the effect we thought it was. It's actually confusing people." And then you can go fix it. So, I just what I find is that it's it's kind of that classic thing in life where too many data points and too many things you're measuring creates a lot of confusion and you don't know which way is up. Too few, like just measuring MPS, it's hard to make that actionable. And then you're kind of at the mercy of a metric, which is, you know, like any other metric is going to be imperfect. And so finding that sweet spot that works for your organization where you have just enough and you even have some that are counterbalancing, it's super actionable for any design team. And what I think is so cool is that you can Use those to go change the decisions you make and guide them. And uh, to me, that's one of the places where business and design are natural buddies, right? And math and design and, and metrics, they're all really good. And, and it's, it's, uh, it'll make you a better designer.
2: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, designbetter. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T DESK.COM to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5.
0: Diego, I, I like that point you made earlier about sort of sticking to your core strengths. And it brought to mind news story I heard this morning about Tesla considering getting into the car insurance business. Hmm where you had this, sort, of, or at least I had this natural reaction, like, is that your core strength? <laughs> well, but Elon may prove us wrong on that point. But I wanted to fi- find out if you, know, if you could tell any stories about how design informed one of those types of decisions. Yeah,
1: I can think of any number of those. I mean, especially during my time at IDEO, we always had clients coming to us saying, we need to grow. We're not sure how to grow. Could you help us figure out a new, a new place to go, right? So there was actually this gray moment I had leading our studios here in the Bay Area. And twice a week, we would meet in a big room and figure out who was going to work on which project. And it was a participatory process. So just imagine a room with a big whiteboard and a lot of people drinking coffee. It's nine in the morning, and we're having vigorous back and forth conversations because the culture, which is such a great culture, like the prototypical Silicon Valley culture, we're not going to tell you to go work on something we want to hook you up with something, you know, nine out of 10 times that's just going to be, you're going to feel totally jazzed about and you're going to ignite the process. So this meeting was a big deal, right? It was, it was really at the heart of the business. But we went through a series of projects and one was called The Future of Beer and the other one was like reinventing the hospital experience. And the next one was, I think, about creating a new school system in Peru. And, Sign uh, me
2: up for the first one. <laughs> yeah,
1: there you go, right? And and that was the point is like, I want to do the school system in Peru. You want to work on the future of beer. Everybody's getting hooked up with something really, really amazing. But I think that what was happening in each of those cases was that wasn't necessarily a company that did school systems. It was somebody saying, we can do more with what we've got. And my last part of my career at IDEO was when we went through, we didn't call it IDEO 3.0, but that's kind of what it was, which was we redid our mission statement. And uh, just parenthetically, I've been so lucky to work at companies that are always trying to do good in the world, whether it's Hewlett-Packard or IDEO. At IDEO, we were saying, um, we want to have impact in the world through design. What we moved to was, we want to have disproportionate impact on the world through design. And into it, our mission is to power prosperity around the world. So you can see for me, There's a huge amount of continuity across all those. But at that IDEO, moving from we want to have impact in the world through design to disproportionate meant, well, disproportionate means we can't just have people designing things for other people because that's only going to scale linearly. We want to scale non-linearly and have a 10x improvement, right, in our impact in the world. So that meant that, hey, it's going to be stuff that's, software. It's going to be experiences that aren't professional services necessarily. What are those going to be? So we had to spend some time figuring out what we actually did well, because there was a sizable number of people saying, Hey, let's stick to our knitting. Let's just you know, the business speak would be what's our core competency. And we can't stray from the core competency, but we actually diagnosed, I guess you could say, what are the core things that IDEO does really well. And there were three. As it turned out, I said, we're really good at framing problems and making them actionable. Because if you can't figure out how to structure the problem, how do you get started? We're really good at bringing together really diverse groups of people to work on something and creating a psychologically safe culture that just liberates them all. Well, that's pretty cool. And the third thing is we're actually really good at teaching people how design works, but in an organic kind of just by getting them together. And we said, wow, you know, with those three ingredients, we can do some pretty amazing things. And so that's what led us go into stuff like IDOU, which is online learning, or there's something, an offering at IDO called the CoLab, which is somewhat analogous to the MIT Media Lab. It's bringing together different organizations to uh, go do pretty radical R&D. So. I think it's it, it, to me, it goes back to the human centered design process, right? If you step back in any system, whether it's a B2B system or B2C, or you're helping people with their taxes or creating a school in South America, there's a human in the loop there. And your company, your organization is there to help people. When you step back and say, How are we helping people? That'll reveal those core things that you do and then you can kind of go remix them and, and i think that's the way to break through of this idea of we can't do that hey man uh, more power to elon maybe he sees that in in what they're doing and says we can serve our customers better if we can ensure the vehicles were we're selling i can
2: i could see a lot of ways why that would work yeah it's especially handy when uh, you don't have humans driving cars anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Somebody's
1: going to insure the car though, right? So, uh, so <laughs> exactly. it's, again, you got to follow the money.
2: I want to talk a little bit more about your transition from IDEO to Intuit. You had a long tenure at IDEO and uh, certainly learned a lot along the way, I'm sure. What did you learn at IDEO that you've brought into Intuit that is in the Intuit design practice today?
1: Yeah, my 17 years at IDEO were just mind-blowing for me in my development as a designer. It was a chance for me to work with my mentor and boss and teacher and friend, David Kelly, and watch him in action and learn so much from him. And his his episode on this podcast, I think, is my favorite. He'll always be my design guru. And um, so the things I learned from IDEO that I've brought to it, it's really the basics Which Intuit was already doing very well, right? I'm just there to amplify and expand. Our former CEO, Brad Smith, wrote a wonderful article in the Harvard Business Review in 2015, where he talks about Intuit's design journey. And in it, he talks about how when Scott Cook, our founder, launched Quicken 35 years ago, it succeeded on the marketplace, even though there were a lot of competitors. And one of the reasons it succeeded was it only had one-third the features that all those other software packages did. Think about that, right? You put up the comparison chart and yours is one-third as long as everybody else's. Uh, But we all know that it's really easy to compete on features, but it's taking you away from what actually is valuable to customers. The reason I bring that up is that in that article, Brad talks about how Intuit kind of lost its way at some point and had lost its ability to design simple and elegant, beautiful products. And he talks about in that article, the steps they were taking in that by 2015, they were well into this Renaissance of design at Intuit. And so I arrive on the scene two years later and I knew stepping into it, that that was the case, that this wasn't a turnaround. I wasn't here to start something from scratch. I was here to help the people there amazing people take it to the next level. And so I think what I've brought from IDEO is just a sense of I've seen a world-class design culture operating at scale at IDEO. And for Intuit, what I'm doing now is to just ensure that we're paying attention to elements of culture, of training, and focusing, continue to focus on the fundamentals that Brad articulated that got them to go through this renaissance and just ensure that we we don't get complacent, that we keep investing in these things, that we keep pushing to be better than we can be today. And another mentor of mine at, at IDEO was Jim Yurchenko, who is the engineer who designed the first mouse. He's actually a Stanford graduate and probably walked around this building at some point. And he's not a trained engineer. He has an MFA in sculpture here, but he has this amazing ability to motivate people and can see things, complex mechanisms moving in his head and he just knows what's right. And he taught me how to set the bar really high, really, really high, but to do it in a way where you wanted to work on his projects more than for anybody else. And each morning when you came into work, you felt like this is going to be the best day of your design career. And I'm trying to bring that spirit and make sure that that's uh, you know, it's already happening in Intuit in most places and where it's not, how can we make sure that happens consistently and really, again, take it to the next level?
2: Diego, we recently did an extensive study of Intuit through a project that we call the Design Genome Project and Vision, And it's a way for us to understand what makes a design team tick, understand the superpowers and how they tackle common problems. One thing that really stood out to us about uh, Intuit is that there are these distinct products like QuickBooks, Mint, and TurboTax. Uh, Each They don't necessarily have the exact same customer base. It's almost like a federated approach to products and teams. Could you talk to us a bit about how in that sort of environment, you reduce entropy? Is there a way to share resources, share a design system? Maybe that doesn't work because of the branding being so distinct. Uh, Maybe research methodologies can be shared. What are the things that connect these business units? And what are the things that are very unique and different?
1: Well, that is a great question. And I'll go back to the idea of customer obsession, which is a term we use a lot at Intuit. And if you unpack that, right, obviously the customer part of it is pretty clear. There's customers who you're designing for. And by the way, I really prefer that to saying the word user. It bugs me when people say user when the person they're designing for is a customer or a patient or a student. So I think it's, let's call them what they are. They're our customers. And the obsession part, you have to think really carefully about that one because I think it's easy to give lip service to an idea like, hey, we're customer obsessed. But how do you actually make that happen organizationally. And and as you're saying, you need to make specific choices. And there's always a tension there, right? It'd be great if to design a system where everything was guaranteed to be unified. Everybody would always be on the same page. Life would be really clean and simple and no entropy, as you were saying. On the other hand, we serve a lot of different customers with different needs. The way we think about it is that all of our customers are individuals, right? In some sense, you could say they're all consumers, right? We all have personal finances. We're all worried about, hey, how do I pay my rent this month? Or how am I going to get my kid to school? You know, am I, how can I max out my tax return, my refund? And how am I going to save for retirement? All those things that we think about because money is such an emotional issue and it's at the core of everybody's lives it's just not something they're comfortable talking about or thinking about and then some of those people have decided to go be entrepreneurs and and go out on their own right so they're running a small business and i've never met anybody who knew how to run their small business before they started it not even my friends who have mbas you don't take a small running a small business course at business school you learn you know wall street finance and stuff like that so very different customers right and i'm i've been a mint user since before Intuit acquired mint and i'm a passionate mint user what i love is that we have a structure where there are people who wake up every morning right designers product managers engineers data scientists marketers customer success people finance people and they're thinking how do i make the mint experience better they're not thinking oh what project am i on today am i on mint or am i worrying about TurboTax? now there are some people like me who work across all of those and are thinking about what we would call an ecosystem experience because the truth is we do have some experiences that go across those products like when you log into an intuit product you're logging in to an intuit uh, login experience there's not a different portal for the different products so the balance and the, and the the magic is figuring out where you're going to be on that, that spectrum from having everything be completely individualistic and siloed to everything being so uniform that you lose touch with who your customers are and what they really need. So, yeah, I spent – actually, yesterday I was in our San Diego office and I spent the day with our TurboTax and Turbo team. And Turbo is uh, a product that we have. It's an app that you get on your phone, and it, it really helps you understand where you sit relative to something like a credit score or just, just basic personal finance. And we spent the entire morning with nine customers, and they had, they had brought in customers to come in and talk to us about their personal finances. Some were people who were in college who had no cash flow, serious student loans, we're trying to figure out, you know, how can I how can I pay my rent payment given my part time job and I'm not getting paid until a, a week after the rent check is due. To some people who were retiring and we're trying to figure out how to best uh, manage their stock portfolio for the next twenty years. And, you know, we walked out of that session galvanized. Um, myself you know, as a person who's kind of an outsider with that group, but. Looking across everything they're doing and trying to integrate it with other things, I see happening and in into it. But for those people whose job it is to make TurboTax even better, man, they—we left that session with a list of things to go design, and that's why for me, though it would, as I said, it'd be a lot easier if we had one design organization and one engineering organization, and everybody, you know, was marching to the exact same tune. The diversity you get and the focus is well worth it. What we do to make sure that we are coherent is implement processes and structures that ensure that the right things will actually be fixed. And we, we have a framework which we call fixed, flexible, and free, which is extremely useful. When things are kind of getting confusing and a little bit maybe emotional in a meeting and people are saying, well, I really want it to be this way or I want it to be this way. You can do two things. One is you go back to like, okay, what does the customer really need? And then two, we can say, well, in this situation, how, it, it, can we actually make this free? Meaning can we all make an individual choice? Like can we actually have a button act differently across these two apps? Is that cool? Can we be flexible with it where, hey, you can change the color, but we're not going to change the actual way that it's, it's moving on the screen? Or is it fixed? And like the example of the login screen, that's fixed. Like, you log in one way. We're not changing that because that would confuse customers. And uh, as a response to that, we, we have something called the Intuit Design System. It's our way to have a consistent set of building blocks. And it's not just showing the aesthetics or the, the interaction design. It actually has code running behind it. So any developer or any designer can log into the Intuit Design System find the button they need or the widget they need and they it shows them exactly what parameters they can change, right? What colors are allowable, make the changes, grab the code and then go implement it in the product. So that's our way of dealing with your entropy issue, right? Mm. We've defined this is fixed, this is flexible, this is free and therefore any diversity or creativity we see in the product which is welcome is controlled, right? And uh, it's Again, I always think about how do you find that balance in a human system? And it's not about resolving tension, it's about managing it.
0: So we often ask our guests, what's inspiring you right now? Is there, are there any books or blogs or podcasts or even people that are, do you find inspiring? Yeah,
1: you know, I, uh, I have to admit, I don't read that much about design per se. It's more because I mean, there's so many fascinating people out in the world, Right. And so I get inspiration from all over the place, from sports, literature, obviously music and art and movies. I use Twitter for this very reason. I don't get on there and engage in debates with people at all, uh, but I use it to cultivate. I have this thing where I try and limit myself to uh, a 1,000 people that I'll follow at once. It's kind of a nice-looking number. And And it seems to give me enough diverse feeds without overwhelming me. But I consciously go through every three months, I'll let it creep up to about 1,200 and then I'll take it back down to 1,000. And I'm always trying to keep about a quarter of it new. So that keeps me hearing new things from new people while also having a core of people that I just need to follow, You know, the John Midas of the world and so forth. So that's a big inspiration point for me. But you know what? At the end of the day, like, It's something I learned from Naoto Fukusawa, the amazing, you know, former IDEO designer, now legendary designer in Japan is when in doubt, get out in nature. And, uh, it's, it's not just from an aesthetic standpoint where you'll just see a lot of beautiful things, but seeing complexity in action and having respect for it and knowing that there's always a more clever and more elegant approach that can be taken to whatever problem you may have at work is very grounding and I find simultaneously very inspiring. So, you know, all this stuff we do is really important. And I think making life better for customers is one of the best things you can wake up each morning looking forward to do with your day. But uh, you've got to stay grounded and know that every day you can learn something from somebody else. And I think there's a great woman... Um, who sadly passed away a few years ago, who taught at Stanford while I was here as an undergraduate, Sarah Little Turnbull. And go go Google her if you can, Sarah Little Turnbull. And she came to our class once, and we asked her a bunch of questions about, hey, what makes a good designer? And she said, good designers are great readers. And I took that to heart. And just it's one of those like stay hungry and stay curious, and you'll never get bored being a designer. That's wonderful. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Diego. Well, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, thanks, Diego.